Welcome to The Jolt. It's the 1st of March. I'm your host, Sam Morgan. A very happy St. David's Day, Dithgwil Dawi Hapus, to any of my Welsh compatriots out there, as well, of course, the rest of you listening to The Jolt today. It's Friday, so that means Kira will be joining me later to go over the big news from the week, as well as digging into the results of an online poll on nuclear power that we asked all of you to vote on. You won't want to miss that. First up, let's have a look at the big climate and energy stories making headlines around the world today. Greenhouse gas emissions from energy production grew again in 2023, despite record progress on clean power deployment. The International Energy Agency says in a new report that emissions rose 1.1% because more fossil fuels were needed to make up for hydropower busting droughts, and increased energy demand. Developed economies continue to break the link between growth and emissions, but their progress is being cancelled out by poorer countries' increased use of power sources like coal. However, the IEA is still bullish on the longer-term trajectory, pointing out that emissions over the past five years would have been three times higher without clean power deployment. The agency also says that the past couple of years of crisis had the potential to derail the energy transition completely, and that fossil fuels are nevertheless in structural slowdown. The state of New York has thrown a lifeline to the wind power sector by awarding 1.7 gigawatts of contracts to European developers Orsted and Equinor. Two new wind farms off the coast of Long Island will attract more than $2 billion in investment and create 800 long-term jobs, according to the governor's office. Last year, inflation and high costs forced Orsted to pull out of two projects that were in development in New Jersey. Bloomberg reports that this new award will allow the Danish firm to reduce its losses by a quarter of a billion dollars. One of the Netherlands' grid operators has told electric car owners in certain areas not to charge their vehicles between 4pm and 9pm. Stedin, a regional operator, says it is a necessary move in order to deal with peak demand. However, electric vehicles guru Orca Hoekstra insists that this is an astonishingly dumb way to deal with peaks and will just make things worse. That is because motorists will simply begin charging at 9pm when the restriction is lifted. Check the show notes for Orca's full debunk of the idea, as well as a link to a recent episode of The Jolt that delves into why the Dutch grid is in so much trouble right now. The European Union's top energy official is in Azerbaijan today to talk fossil fuel exports and renewable energy deployment. Kadri Simpson will discuss with government officials the ongoing capacity expansion of the Southern Gas Corridor, which the EU is increasingly relying on after reducing its Russian gas purchases. Tapping into Azerbaijan's estimated 150 gigawatts of Caspian Sea wind energy is also on the agenda. Delegates from Europe's wind sector will also be in Baku to talk strategy. There will also be talks on the Black Sea Cable, an ambitious proposed project that aims to link Romania and Georgia with an undersea interconnector. Azerbaijan will be keen to burnish its green credentials this year as it prepares to host the COP29 Climate Summit in November. Bosnia and Herzegovina is the only country in Europe that does not have an electricity exchange. That may soon change after the two political entities that make up the country – the Federation of Bosnia-Herzegovina and Republika Srpska, agreed that setting one up is a priority. 
A study is currently being put together on how day-ahead and intraday markets could be applied to the Bosnian power sector. During a meeting between ministers from the two entities, both sides also agreed that more needs to be done to align Bosnian energy legislation with the EU's, given that Bosnia-Herzegovina is bidding for membership of the Union. The process of picking a new chair for the UK's Influential Climate Change Committee has come undone. A shortlist of candidates put together by the British government has been rejected by the governments of Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales. The devolved administrations warned that all six candidates, including a former head of Barclays Bank and several former ministers, are too close to the ruling Conservative Party and that the entire list lacks diversity. With a general election looming large and the Labour Party odds-on to take the reins of power after 14 years in opposition, the Conservatives appear to be trying to install one of their allies in a job whose mandate lasts 10 years. According to The Guardian, government sources say that the recruitment process may have to start from scratch. And finally, Ghana's state-run electricity company cut power to the Parliament on Thursday because of an unpaid bill. The outage interrupted a debate about the President's State of the Union speech and was triggered by an unpaid debt of around $1.8 million. Power was restored after Parliament made a down payment on what was owed and promised to pay the rest as soon as possible. That's it for your news updates today. More on Monday. Now, let's get into the Jolt's weekly review. So here we are again, Friday, end of the week. What's happened of note for you this week? I had a fun week that I learned that even though I might be able to say how the merit order works for how electricity is priced in the EU, it turns out that doesn't mean you can fix a fuse box. And so when all the power went out in my apartment, I ended up having to panic call an electrician. I will say I did fix the first fuse box. I just didn't realize there was a second one because apparently apartment buildings can have two fuse boxes. Two fuse boxes, ridiculous. Yeah, you would think that I'm very familiar with fuse boxes because the house I grew up in had, for some inexplicable reason, the fuse box was at least two metres off the ground and the kitchen lights tripped the entire system. So about once a week, the house fused. And I have very vivid memories of my mum standing on the kitchen stool with a broom poking the fuse box. (laughs) So... Yeah, you'd think I would know how they work, but I probably need to stick to energy policy for the moment. That sounds like a very unique situation as well. But thank goodness for YouTube videos as well. I know they've gotten me out of some scrapes. Oh, but I had no battery. Like, this was the other thing I realised, that for countries which regularly have power cuts, there's really nothing you have. Like, I was relying on data. My phone was on 50%. I was like, I have to fix this soon otherwise i have no way of actually fixing it it's like you know if we had to go back to the dark ages none of us would have any idea how to survive i don't think i mean talking about power and everything of course that's a great segue into what we're leading the show with today uh, we'd love to get your feedback here at jolt dear listener about what you think about energy transition stuff and at the beginning of the week we asked you what you think about this idea that there's going to be a nuclear power renaissance we hear it every year, right? There's a new nuclear's back, the boys are back in town. And this wasn't a very complex question because you can't fit such a complex question into a LinkedIn poll or a Twitter tweet. But we wanted to get your sentiment about what you think about nuclear at the moment. And uh, I've got the results in front of me, Kira. Very exciting. I haven't, I haven't heard them yet, so I'm excited to hear them. Well, 
I can tell you right now that on LinkedIn, 54% of people said, no, uh, there will be no nuclear renaissance. We're not on the cusp of one, but 46% people said yes. And then over on Twitter, where I think we've both encountered quite our fair share of nuclear bros and uh, people commenting under any tweet about German energy policy that nuclear is the answer, 85% people said no, and only 15% said yes. Where's the nuclear lobby? Were they asleep this week? I was really, I thought social media would uh, throw up yes results for both, but um, apparently not. It has been overplayed according to our polls anyway very comprehensive polls but um so what what do you think about this i mean you're you're more in brussels than i am these days so like from an eu point of view where do you think how does nuclear feel to you at the moment in the energy transition debate it's it's very difficult to speak about nuclear in brussels and it means that it's very difficult to also see how people view it because you're in this world where you have like france and some central and eastern european countries really 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 pushing for nuclear So in that way, you would say, yeah, the world is super pro-nuclear. But then you also have Austria, Luxembourg, not so much Germany, but Germany's a bit quieter about it, being like, no nuclear at all, it's awful. So in Brussels, it's really difficult to get a worldview of nuclear because it's so polarised and it's very controversial. Having said that, you have seen the nuclear alliance in in recent years and similar moves on, on the world stage. I don't know whether we would call that a renaissance or whether it's just people banding together and making targets. And then obviously targets, as always, are targets and not actual nuclear power plants. And as we think we both know, coming from the UK, nuclear power plants take a while to build. I mean, that's it, right? I mean, there's been no milestone or massive leap forward over the last 12 months that suggests that anything's going to really change anytime soon. I mean, if anything, it's been... There's been a lot of confirmation that nuclear has these massive problems when it comes to financing and actually being turned on in time. Like you say, from the UK, Hinkley Point, £35 billion instead of £18 billion before you take inflation into account. 2031 instead of 2028 or whenever it was supposed to be. So the UK's 2030 climate target is being a bit jeopardised by that. So... Like you say, there's been no trigger where you think, oh, right, they've they've nailed it. They've slashed costs during the production process or something like that. And even though at COP we saw, what was it, 20 countries or, or something sign up to triple in nuclear by 2050, over on the other side of the, the Dubai summit um, event venue, 120 countries were signing up to triple in renewables. Yeah, I think it is interesting as well just to ask people because I think this is one of those topics where it is very personal, even within countries, within industries. I think it really depends on which direction you're looking at. Absolutely. Yeah, it's people get a lot more emotional about nuclear in the way that hopefully they don't get about renewable power. You know, Donald Trump hating windmills because of birds dying or whatever his latest... uh, even though cats kill more birds than wind turbines. They don't produce energy either, so what's the point? There's <laughs> a big point in cats. We can agree to disagree on that one. Uh, talking about the emotionality of nuclear, I guess, like that's a good sort of link to my favourite, or my the news item I think is the most interesting from this week. It was about um, Kazakhstan and how its government has come up with this new strategy and they want to have nuclear power by the end of the decade. We'll see if that happens or not. But because Kazakhstan has this 
very turbulent history with nuclear power from the weapons side of things. Soviet Union used to just test weapons there without really giving a hoot about environment or human health or communities or anything. Uh, the government has to basically have a referendum on whether or not they should be nuclear, which is nothing new. I guess you see other countries doing the same. I think Italy banned nuclear based on a referendum. But that, again, would be if that goes through and you suddenly have an entire country that has been extremely against any kind of nuclear proliferation, be it civilian or state-led, then you can start thinking about maybe there being a sea change. That's one to keep an eye on, I guess. But otherwise, I think what we said about nuclear stands pretty pretty clear. What, what about from your point of view for news items in general from this week? Was there anything really interesting from your point of view? So mine was the UK's Climate Change Committee basically saying, okay, you did really well, you met your third carbon budget and you actually you know, overshot it, but please don't start saying, oh, well, we've got all of this stuff that we can now use, we can weaken future climate policies. And that's particularly because I think the carbon budget went from 2018 to 2022. It covered some very unique years where the pandemic did cause a drop in emissions. We saw that all the way around the world. So if you are in surplus, just take that as an advantage. Don't start cashing in on that. And I think it's really interesting, given what we're seeing from the UK government at the moment, that that's what's being said from you know, the independent climate watchdog. So the conclusion was really keep this for a rainy day because you don't know what's coming. Yeah, or just basically, I'm not sure it was even keep it for a rainy day. I think it was just don't even think about it. about episodes you did the heavy lifting this week three in a row um, was there any particular aspect of the topics you chose or the people you spoke to that were really noteworthy or some behind the scenes tidbits that you can share I think it was really fascinating going a bit into my roots with circular economy because it's something that I used to cover from an actual circular economy perspective so sustainability recycling and all of this and it's one thing I didn't expect to see so much of when I joined Foresight. But obviously, circularity now applies to renewable energy and it applies to the entire energy sector. So it's really interesting combining those two bits of knowledge, I think. So on Thursday, I was looking at the sustainability of the way that we communicate with each other. So whether it's kind of the big towers that enable our phones to talk to each other or whether it's you know the mobile phones that we have in our hands. And they have a lot of materials that should be recycled and that actually have quite a lot of value when they're recycled. But there's still a lot of progress to actually get to the point where they can be recycled a lot. And then having that simultaneously with the Guardian story about African countries beginning to put their foot down and say, you know, there are issues with the way that some materials that are used in the green transition are being mined was a really interesting link between the two because obviously the more we recycle critical raw materials, the less we need to mine for virgin ones and hopefully the less human rights abuses and environmental damage we'll have. Mm -hmm. The amount of different aspects of the energy transition that it takes into account are huge. Like you say, raw materials, renewable power, trade. And actually we've got this coming up in the next Foresight magazine which will be all about circularity. Absolutely. Like lots of different topics in there as well. It isn't just about how you recycle stuff. It's you know repurposing, building stuff, 
so that it doesn't even need to be recycled or, or whatever like that. I think it's going to be really interesting and it's um, yeah going to be a really good read when that comes out. We'll keep you posted when. Uh, just on that episode, was your first phone a Nokia as well? Or am I showing my age here? Don't make me say how Gen Z I am. Oh, no. um, mine was a pink flippy Samsung. But I remember playing Snake on my mum's phone a lot. She literally had a brick and I think it lasted her about 20 years. My first one was a Nokia. My parents wouldn't let me have one, but I was out playing with my mates one day and I found one, took it to the police station like a good little boy. Uh, and they said, no, I'll just keep it. No one will ever come claim it. So that was how I got my first phone. Did you not, would it not have had a SIM card and stuff? Did you just take the phone number? No, my uh, my friend who pretended to be like an expert in mobile phones said, give me the SIM card, I want to use the credit. So whatever happened with them, I think he got a lot of angry phone calls from the person who it belonged to eventually. But it wasn't my problem then. And it's still in my drawer somewhere. And I think I turned it on a couple of years ago and it still worked. So The battery for those things lasted forever. That's that's the one like conspiracy theory that I let myself believe is that companies like Nokia back in the day developed a battery that lasts forever, but they were shut down by the government. Yeah. The one thing I realized though, Nokia don't produce phones anymore. They sold it off to Microsoft. Look what they took from us. Civilization peaked in 2001. What episode stood out for you this week? Well, the one I did on Monday, my, the main one I did this week, which was about uh, shipping and how the shipping industry wants to close this gap between the really expensive alternative fuels that are starting to come online now and the really cheap, dirty ones that have been used for decades now. And uh, the industry's got this nice plan to have this fund where people using the cheap fuel would pay so that the people using the expensive fuel would get a little extra. And so that was quite nice to, to hear the details about that. Obviously, people can go listen to the episode to find out a bit more. But it was more the, the criticism of it that really kind of opened my eyes to it because I, when you hear like a nice announcement by the industry where they're kind of self-regulating in a way and they, you know, especially when it's an industry that hasn't done a lot of work in the past and suddenly they're doing something, sometimes easy to be swept along by the hype. But then it's always nice to talk to someone who really does know what they're talking about, who can tell you, well, this is all well and good, but it's going to fail in these certain decarbonization objectives. And what my guest said on Monday about how this thing will basically not incentivize the really long-term stuff that shipping needs to decarbonize like hydrogen derived fuels so that was a nice sort of contrast i think between yes this industry is actually doing something for once after many years of getting away with murder and then to have that balance with um the academics saying this is what actually needs to be done so that was a nice journalistic exercise in a way to to remember to get that view that kind of links into so much of the problem we see across the entirety of the energy transition that what you plan to do in the short term doesn't always reflect what you need to do in the long term and how do you invest in technologies that may only carry you 10 years or do you just jump to technologies but have they been you know is there enough innovation there yet so it was interesting hearing those two perspectives side by side Absolutely. I mean, on the timeline as well, you know, shippers are buying boats that they want to last 50 years or something like that. So what is sometimes applicable to one sector like renewable power or road transport is is not going to fit particularly well with, with other sectors like aviation or shipping. So that's good to remember as well. Talking of timelines, what about next week? Do you have anything on the agenda, jolt-wise or otherwise, that um, we can make our listeners look forward to? 
I am going to be at the so the Power Summit in Brussels next week. So we have a live recording of What Matters, which I also produce. So I would encourage people to come along to that. Um, uh, Monday afternoon, you can see the magic for real. I normally get in, to watch it as it's being recorded. So you can pretend to be me. You, you can get that experience of watching it as it all comes together. And then I am speaking at the event as well, which is a strange thing for a journalist, but I'm speaking about how we can improve public participation and how we can kind of get the message of the energy transition out to the general public. So, yes, and I'll also see if I'm inspired at the Solar Power Summit to record a Jolt episode. We'll see what happens. Fantastic. So people should definitely come up to you and give you ideas about what you should do your episodes about. Oh, yeah. Come and say hi. I look forward that's the we can have a chat about what you got up to on your panel and um next friday's show maybe uh what about me what am i doing next week i'll just check my notes quickly i think i'm going to be talking a bit more about nuclear so if anyone's been inspired by what they've heard today a bit of views on that if you want to leave us a comment down in the contribution section for people to talk to or aspects of nuclear that we didn't mention here that would be great to get in the episode as well and um, I might also be talking to a former colleague of both of ours, I won't say who it is, uh, about the farming protests. Who could it possibly be? Murder on the Orient Express, but with uh, agricultural policy. I would love someone to do a Venn diagram to work out who, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's what we've got coming for everybody next week. Like I said, we really want your feedback. So do leave your comments and tweet us, DM, send us emails about things that you think we should be talking about, investigating. Uh, there's a whole world of energy transition topics to choose from but we need a bit of guidance to figure out which ones you'd actually like to hear about so we always appreciate you getting in touch with us we do indeed and we'll uh, we'll see you next week see you next week many thanks for joining us today the job will be back on monday so please do join us then we do this five times a week if you're a Foresight member, you can tune in Monday to Friday to get your fix of energy and climate news and analysis, as well as enjoying access to all of our other podcasts and articles. Sound good? Want to join our ever-expanding community? Then you're in luck. It's never been easier or more rewarding. Simply head on over to foresightmedia.com forward slash onboarding forward slash the jolt to sign up. We're throwing in a free month to get you started as well. Thanks to everyone behind the scenes at Foresight for helping to make the jolt possible. And shout out to Mute Island for providing the theme music. Until next time, thanks for being a part of the jolt. Oh.